0: So congratulations on braving the slush to be with us today. We're glad it's not exactly a repeat of Hurricane Sandy and glad that our speaker could uh, come back after that uh, event canceled his October engagement with us. So I'm Nancy Magnuson, Goucher College librarian. Welcome to the Goucher Athenaeum. We moved here in 2009, but it still feels new, and we still host many visitors to see its innovative features and especially after we were designated by Library Journal as the new landmark library last summer. Uh, and this year we're seeing extra visitors for our exhibit celebrating the 200th anniversary of Pride and Prejudice, so I hope you'll take a look at that exhibit while you're here as well. It's all, it surrounds this, uh, this level of the Athenaeum. Um, the Athenaeum Library Series was established in 2011 to celebrate our new building and to provide a venue for speakers on topics related to libraries, books, and reading. And we're very open to having those events be collaborations with other libraries or organizations. So if you have any ideas, uh, give me a buzz. For example, last year and coming up in May, we're uh, working with the Maryland Association of School Librarians to host the Black Eyed Susan Awards. So watch out for that too. And for tonight's program, or this afternoon's program, I want to thank uh, for support, especially the Friends of the Goucher College Library, supporting the library at Goucher since 1949. You can see more about the friends at the table outside the room, or ask one of the people wearing one of these snazzy buttons, Um, all members of of Friends of the Library committees. Also, the uh, Catherine Parker Scholl Library Fund, Mrs. Parker, Mrs. Shaw was the member of the class of 1922, and her family endowed a fund to enable the library to respond to unplanned for needs. So, as you can imagine, there are many of those, and and we're very grateful to that family. And also uh, today, the uh, Laura Cooper Graham, Laura Graham Cooper Lecture Fund, which was established in 1899 with a gift from Harriet Frances Cooper in memory of her sister, Laura Graham Cooper. Neither of those sisters were alumni of the college, but Harriet decided that at Goucher, her sister's friends, as well as her friends, could enjoy the lectures. Um, I also want to thank for program planning my colleagues Randy Kennedy and Maggie Dole for their work on this program. Uh, Maggie, like me, is a graduate of the Information School at the University of Washington. So we're really, although when I went there, it was called the School of Librarianship, um, and so, but we're really especially proud to present uh, this afternoon's speaker. Joe Janes is Associate Professor and Chair of the Master of Library and Information Science Program at the Information School, the I School. Um, all of Joe's academic degrees are from Syracuse University. He has a a bachelor's in mathematics, Phi Beta Kappa, Master of Library Science, and a doctorate in information transfer, whatever that is. Maybe he'll tell us. He's also taught at the University of Michigan, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, the State University of New York at Albany, and Syracuse University. Um, Chapel Hill is one of the two universities that supposedly is ahead of the number three ranked University of Washington. But, well, yeah, we're not sure it belongs there. Um, Joe talks a lot. It says in his bio that he's a frequent speaker, but, and he's the co-author of eight books on librarianship technology and their relationship. Uh, he's a regular columnist for American Libraries, as most of you know, and after years of ending his Internet Library column with the phrase, but that's another story, They recently renamed the column to Another Story. He was the founding director of the Internet Public Library, um, which some of you students will recognize as something I've recommended to you. Um, And most recently, he's launched a podcast, uh, Documents That Changed, Changed the World which discusses the origin of historically important documents uh, and how that meaning has changed along with our world. Those documents are as varied as John Snow's 1854 cholera map, the 19th Amendment, Mao's Little Red Book, and the AIDS Quilt. So please join me in welcoming Joe Janes and Information Makes Us Human. Well, thank
1: you, and and first I want to thank Nancy and Randy and Maggie for all all the arrangements for making this all possible. Um, I will just say I was promised cherry blossoms, (laughs) and I'm not going to hold it against you since I appear to be the bad weather God, since I was supposed to come in Hurricane Sandy Hint, and then, uh, as Nancy said, I grew up just outside of Syracuse, so I will be blamed for this, I know. But I live in Seattle, where this never happens. And But for the record, it is 59 and sunny in Seattle today. So I came for you. Thank you all for coming and braving all of this. I know this is not your native climate any more than it. Well, it is mine. But notice I left Syracuse a long, long time ago. Um, I'm delighted to be here. I will do my best to live up to all the people who gave the money to make this happen. Um, and to share with you. Um, uh, as Nancy said, I spent I, I, I spent many years writing a column for American Libraries and ended completely by accident. Compl- uh, started ending all of those with, but that's another story. And I am, by nature, a storyteller. So I'm going to tell you some stories and let's see what we can make of those stories. Um, and what I'm going to leave you with is we as people make information in two different ways. One you're thinking about and one you're not yet. But both of those ways tell us something about our relationship to information and information's relationship to us and to human society. And, and each of them tells us something about how we got the way we are. So, let me start. Uh, uh, information is everywhere, right? We're surrounded by it, particularly in this building, in this beautiful building. Which, where information manifests itself in lots of different ways. There's books, there's magazines, there's the beautiful special collections and archival space, there's the art gallery, um, there's all the posters of all the 75 million translations of Pride and Prejudice. Uh, the information, we are literally surrounded by information here, not to mention we are living in the air. Information is in the air. Uh, wireless and satellite and microwave transmissions pass through our bodies. So somebody's text message just went through your elbow. And somebody's Facebook post just went through your head. And, of course, we're made of information. Our DNA is the genetic code, is the information of which we as human beings are made. So we are now to the point in the information age that we all know about every day. Um, it's, we're now to the point where it's harder to get away from it than it is to find it. And, in fact, my colleague, David Levy, um, is in the Chronicle of Higher Education today in a piece about a course he teaches with us on information and contemplation. Um, He's done research that shows that people who meditate um, are are better able to cope with information than people who don't, um, and that multitasking doesn't work, which we all kind of know, but we pretend. Um, So I want to... get you to think about some of the kinds of forms and genres of information that I'm going to talk about. Many of you know almost as, well, many of you know more about this stuff than I do, but how old is the encyclopedia? How far back does that go? How far back does the book go? The book is a physical object. How far back does the scholarly journal go? How far back does the library, does the idea of the library go? And then, of course, the most important question, how far back does Google go? Um, So, well, I want to tell some stories about these and some other kinds of objects and just see where they take us. So, who's the brave person who's going to volunteer when the first encyclopedia was? There are no prizes. I should have brought little ice gold doodahs, but we'll pretend there's a prize. Was it in the 1630s in France? France? Are there other takers? I'm gonna talk about this I'm gonna talk about France. Seventeen hundreds? Are there other bidders?
0: Perhaps you're thinking of the cave paintings and that cave, but I can't think of the name of in France.
1: Nice guy. I'll go somewhere in between which is Pliny the Elder in the first century. The Historia Naturalis is the first... Actually, the caves are coming, as is France. Um, the, the caves are coming, the the oldest extant encyclopedia we know of is the Historia Naturalis, Pliny the Elder, 77, uh, of the Common Era. Um, either 20,000 topics or um, uh, 2,000 chapters, depending on how you want to count it. We don't have all of it. Um, we believe there was some collection of what an educated person should know about 450 years earlier, but nothing survives. Plato's nephew, forever to be known as, Susseppius, who's forever to be known as Plato's nephew. Um, uh, and, of course, this is now available in uh, full text online. Uh, So this is, the the Historia Naturalis is now, as of 19, this is the 1906 translation of the Historia Naturalis uh, made available to the Perseus Digital Library, um, 1995. Um, If you notice the original date, about 77, if that date twigs a little, uh, if if that rings a tiny little bell in the back of your mind, Um, Pliny, among other things, was very curious, and on a bright summer's morning uh, just outside of Naples, two years after he finished this, he saw a strange cloud on the horizon and went to investigate, and in so doing became the first encyclopedist to give his life for his task um, when he went underneath Vesuvius like everybody else did. So never let it be said that information work isn't dangerous and thrill-seeking, because... (laughs) Funny things can happen if you're not paying attention. Um, There's a Chinese encyclopedia of sorts from the 3rd century. There's an Arabic encyclopedia from the 9th. Um, The first one we know of that was written by a woman um, was the Hortis Deliciarum. Uh, It's an encyclopedia of horticulture and and herbs uh, from the abbess Harad in 1180. There's an encyclopedia written entirely in verse in French from the 13th century, which must have been quite a feat. Um, There's Sir Francis Bacon's um, uh, Great Awakening, the Instario Magno in 1620, that for many people is sort of the first modern encyclopedia, except he never actually wrote it. Um, He did write a prospectus, though, and the prospectus for the Great Awakening uh, which was Frank, Francis Bacon's attempt to plan out an encyclopedia, uh, took root in the encyclopédie, which is what many people think of, uh, Diderot. I'll come to Diderot in a second. Let me go back to Bacon. Bacon not only is constructing a, a plan for an encyclopedia, he's also creating the scientific method as we know it. So, the 17th century, 1620, is when uh, Bacon uh, puts together the beginnings of what we now think of as the scientific method bear that in mind, we'll come back to Bacon and the Scientific Method in a little while. And in fact, this, um, Diderot's plan for the Encyclopédie, the Système Figuré, is is Bacon, just translated into French. Uh, 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 Diderot had time to do this because he was in jail on an atheism charge. (laughs) So he's able to translate Mémoire, raison, imagination, memory, reason, and imagination. And that's what Bacon divided all of human knowledge into was memory, reason, and imagination. And actually, when I teach reference these days, I tell people all of reference work is memory and imagination. Can you remember it? Can you imagine it? And that'll actually take you a long way. That and and uh, Isidore Mudge, content over uh, um, method over material. That'll that's all you need to know about reference work. So Diderot um, uh, finally it takes him the better part of twenty years to publish this thing. Attacked by the Jesuits, condemned by the Pope, censored by the, gov- by the government, editors resign. They run out of money. Ah, da 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 da. Um, he writes the he writes the prospectus while he's in an atheist charge. Uh, an atheism charge. Note the date here. This finishes in 1772 um, in Paris. And we all know what happened a few years later in Paris. It's overstating the case to say that the Encyclopédie uh, kick-started the revolution. But it certainly was around and it was in the air. And among the more interesting features of the Encyclopédie is that it is not attempting, it was never attempting to be what you think of as an encyclopedia. It was never intending to be neutral. It was never intending to be a sort of dispassionate, uh, you know, uh, 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 non-judgmental uh, presentation of the knowledge of the universe. This was meant to change people's minds. This was meant to foster the enlightenment. This was meant to make people think in a time in a country where that was not incurred. So Voltaire wrote for this, and Rousseau wrote for this, and Montesquieu wrote for this. And he's trying to uh, forward the goals of the Enlightenment, and the the idea of reason, and the importance of reason. Um, What Diderot is trying to do is is ferment a revolution in knowledge, in the way knowledge is created, in the way knowledge is used, in the way knowledge is thought about. Um, And in no small part he succeeded. Um, despite all of the reversals and financial troubles and all the rest of it. He's trying to change the world through a a revolution in knowledge in ways that these people were not. So 1771, uh, this is a moneymaker. This is all about entrepreneurship. So the Britannica, which has won, of course, kind of, or it did until a few years ago, uh, the Britannica got the reputation as being, you know, the world's greatest encyclopedia, blah, 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 and the 11th edition, blah, 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 and all this great business. Um, They were just in it for a buck, Uh, and um, it uh, it worked. But they were largely kind of aping the encyclopédie as an idea. It It isn't a translation, it isn't a copy, but there were a lot of people building encyclopedias in these days, and it was a moneymaker. Um, The first edition came out in uh, 1771. Um, It has just recently announced that they are ceasing publication in print, which leaves the World Book, as far as I know, as the only major encyclopedia left in print. Those were the days. Um, Even until the very last issue, um, the print encyclopedia is dedicated to the British sovereign and the United States president. So it was Elizabeth and Barry. The final, the final volumes were, des- uh, uh, I thought that, I just think that's charming that it's dedicated to the two of them, because it's largely an American institution now. Um, the first edition wound up as three large volumes. This is the frontispiece and title page of the first volume. Uh, many of the articles wound up being extremely long treatises of upwards of 100 pages, and then there were the really small ones. Um, the entry on drama in the first edition got seven lines. The entry on woman got one line. Um, The female of man, see Homo. (laughs) Um, In case you were interested, laxatives dissolved in ass's milk is a remedy for toothache. Uh, California is a large country of the West Indies, um, and they provide a floor plan for Noah's Ark which must have come in handy, along with a very extensive and quite well-illustrated article on midwifery, which if you think about it in 18th century England was really important, but the diagrams were so, how do I say this, vividly disturbing uh, that lots of people ripped them out and sent them back to the Britannica people saying, I don't know why you're publishing this filth, except for the people who actually used it. Uh, Britannica has has been around now uh and it continues to be developed and, and distributed in digital form for over 200 years uh and they've seen highs and lows the as i said the 11th edition is often cited the 1911 11th edition is often cited as the greatest encyclopedia ever written um Rutherford wrote the article about physics um Baden Powell who founded the boy scouts wrote the article about kite flying uh, but they wouldn't let Freud in Freud was mad to the la- to his final days that he did not get to write the article about psychoanalysis uh, for the 11th edition. He made the yearbook in 1924, but he did not get to write the article in- about that. And he was mad about that. We won't speculate on his motives or his motivations for being mad about it, but he was mad about it until the very end of his life. Um, it was almost immediately pirated in the Americas, in America, uh, after its publication. The second edition came out in 1777, I think, in Britain, uh, and was almost immediately pirated because early American copyright law encouraged the, cop- the free copying without pay of English works on the idea that it would help to further the new nation. Uh, uh, George Washington tried to win one in a lottery and failed, so he had to buy one. Uh, Alexander Hamilton bought one but didn't have enough time to enjoy it. Look it up. Um, uh, and, And what Britannica has, what it has developed over the decades and the centuries, is a perception of unassailable authority. If it's in the Britannica, it must be true. That has come from over 200 years, almost 250 years of publication. It has come from the people who've written from it, uh, for it. It's come from the name. Um, and that perception of authority has been largely un- unexplored or untouched for decades. Uh, until it all started to change. So, you know the second one of these. You may not know the first. Um, let me back up just a little bit before this. I was not that long before the Internet Public Library project. I was on a, a Usenet news group. Does anybody remember Usenet news groups? Yes. There was a Usenet news group on, uh, of people who were trying to build an, uh, an Internet encyclopedia. And we went around and around about this, and what was it going to be called? And we should call it the Internet Encyclopedia, and blah, blah, blah. And it finally wound up as the Interpedia. So we're going to call it the Interpedia. Well, that sounds good. This is 1994. There isn't even a web yet, really. Um, Gopher, 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 gopher. Uh, I didn't get—I never got the chance to go to GopherCon, but I loved the idea that there was a convention of people in Minnesota who were like excited about gophers for the like three weeks that gophers were cool.
0: Uh, for those so, of you who cool yeah. the goucher, it's our mascot.
1: Is it really yes. okay?
0: For those of you, for those
1: of you who are thinking of the mascot instead of the internet tool, there was a period of time where the where the primary internet tool was a hierarchically organized thing called Gopher. Um, because it was started at the University of Minnesota, and it's their mascot as well. It didn't take. It was a terrible idea. But it was lovely while it lasted. Um, So we were going to build this Interpedia thing, and then how are we going to build it, and who's going to be responsible for it, and blah. And somebody finally came up with the idea. Uh, It was half technology people and half librarians on this list. And somebody finally came up with the idea of taking the Britannica 11th, which was in the public domain, and each of us would take a page and type it in, and that would be the starting point, And then we'd fix it from there. If that sounds like Project Gutenberg, you're, you're right. Um, I don't think it was Project Gutenberg. But it was, and that ended the discussion right there. That was the end of the whole process. Not very long after that, um, Larry Sanger, who's an a ABD in philosophy who was looking for work um, and trying to figure out some way of sharing knowledge on the internet. And Jimmy Wales, who is a fairly shadowy character, Uh, But he made his money in, hmm, internet photography? Precisely. (laughs) He doesn't like to talk about this very much. And if you say the words, apparently if you say the words Anna Kornikova anywhere near him, he will just turn and walk away. But he also was a futures trader. He also was a bunch of things. We've never really understood what Jimmy's motivation was behind all this. But he he has said in, in interviews that he had a world book encyclopedia as a kid, and he pasted the updates in the pages. You know, in the old days when you had a world book, they'd send you the updates and you could paste them in. So Jimmy was one of those kids who pasted it. Even I didn't do that. So that tells you a little something about where this came from. So anyway, they found each other, and they built something called the Newpedia in 2000, which nobody remembers the Newpedia. And the newpedia was going to be a, an encyclopedia in and of the internet, on the web, and they were gonna get, uh, uh they were gonna, uh, farm out the articles to experts who would write the articles and they would be peer reviewed and when they were really good and really solid they'd be put up on the internet and they'd be part of the newpedia. And that got them about 150 articles after about two or three years of work, so it went nowhere. Um, Larry finds this thing called a wiki, this technology called a wiki. Um, it's from the Hawaiian for fast. WikiWiki wiki is the Hawaiian word for fast. And it's just a way of updating, you know, putting up a web page that anybody can update. So the idea was, let's build a front end to Newpedia where people could, like, draft articles and come up with sort of first drafts, and then we can all fix them together. And then when they get really good and can be peer-reviewed, We'll port them over to the newpedia, and that'll be the really good stuff, and that'll be what people will pay attention to. And we all know what happened. Um, This was a terrible idea. The two of them never saw eye to eye. Uh, When Larry left the Wikipedia project after the Wikipedia took off, he he wrote like a 20-page blog post that read like a bad breakup uh, narrative. You know, of all the things, Jimmy was mean to me, and he never liked me, and he was he was he was a bad person. And, and Jimmy sort of rose above the whole thing, which is why Jimmy now is the is the his his informal name within the Wikipedia movement is he's the God King of Wikipedia, um, which is not a bad gig if you can do it. You know, if you can ever get people to make you the God King, that's not a bad idea. Um, and people often like to. Um, People often like to to paint Jimmy as the modern-day Britannica. You know, that Wikipedia has kind of overtaken Britannica in the modern mindset. If you think about it, the the authority claim of Britannica is a top-down thing. Britannica gets authority because it's Britannica, because they have an editorial board and an editor who knows a lot of smart people, and they can contract with those smart people to write articles on every topic you can think of, well, every important topic you can think of. And, and the people they're going to pick are going to be scholarly and authoritative. And so their claim of authority is a top-down one. And Wikipedia, it isn't exactly like anybody in the world can do it anymore because the bureaucracy has become so sclerotic in Wikipedia that a lot of people have been turned off. And their primary challenge at Wikipedia these days is bureaucratic is to get anything done, you've got to go through a committee structure. Sounds great to like higher ed now that I think about it. And And the problem with Wikipedia is that people have just given up because they can't get anything done. So the Wild West days of Wikipedia are long since over. But the claim of authority from Wikipedia comes from the fact that millions of eyeballs will correct errors. That if something goes into Wikipedia and it's wrong, somebody will catch it and fix it. So you have a top-down approach and a bottom-up approach, and you have claims of authority that proceed from very different perspectives. It also gets you an article on Britney Spears that's ten times as long as the article on Eleanor of Aquitaine, which maybe is appropriate and maybe is not, but you get very different... You you proceed from very different premises. So I don't think Jimmy is Britannica. I think Jimmy is Diderot. I think Jimmy was trying to, to... I don't know why or how or by what means but I think Jimmy was trying to change the way we think about knowledge and he has largely succeeded because Wikipedia has won. And so the idea now that the primary way in which we collect the sum of human knowledge – because any encyclopedia tells us the story that it can all be known – the fact that the winning encyclopedia, at least for the moment, something replaces Wikipedia because something will always replace Wikipedia. Um, at least until then, the winner is bottom up. Tells us something about our relationship with information now, now and in the past, and going forward. Um, the other story that Wikipedia tells us that we've always known forever is that knowledge is socially constructed, and how it how it gets constructed matters. So, how old is the book? As a form. Has anybody got a book? Like an actual book? But your librarians like, there's no books in the book. Right so how old is that form? Oh, that's a good one. How old is that form? When does this form begin? Middle Ages?
0: In paper. In paper. <laughs> well, kind of paper.
1: Alright, I'll give away. So it's about one most of this story is probably not true. But it's a great story. So, don't stop. So, it's about 150, give or take. Not in the afternoon. It's the year 150, give or take. You're a Christian, and you're in Rome. You have two jobs. One is to stay alive, and the other is to make more Christians. There are two ways to make more Christians. The slow way, and the fast way. Uh, and you know, time is the clock is ticking because you can hear the footsteps, uh, and the lions are hungry. Um, so, uh, what? So you want to make more Christians? Well, okay, great. Uh, the primary means of knowledge recording and transmission in second century Rome is the scroll. is the papyrus scroll. Papyrus is relatively cheap um, and plentiful, and used very commonly. And so you've just gotten a new copy of the Gospels. And you've met a friend, and you think that if you can just find that parable of the mustard seed or something, you can seal the deal, right? So you're in some quiet alleyway, and you think, hold that thought. I can find that story. And then you hear the footsteps, and the next thing you know, you're in the Colosseum. It's not a winning strategy. So you need a faster mechanism for access to information. And the scroll is not cutting it. So what you do is, you start with this thing. This thing, which is called a codex, or it's also called a choir. This thing is wooden tablets. This We believe this is Sappho. This is from Pompeii, by the way. Uh, we believe this is Sappho. Um, and this thing is a codex. And what this is, is a series of wooden tablets and each of the wooden tablets has a little space gouged out of the middle of it it's like a hockey rink I and mean, it looks like a hockey rink and there's wax in the indentation and this is this all this makes me think of is magic writing slates mm-hmm. that some of us had as kids you know that that gray plastic film with the waxy thing underneath and you use the little stylus she has a stylus she's warming the stylus that's just a wooden stick. She's warming that in her mouth so it'll track the wax better. So this is how you make notes. This is how you write first drafts, because parchment and and, um, papyrus are too precious to use for just writing notes and such. So she's making notes. um, And you see here the, uh, the tablets are tied together. That's a little ribbon up in the corner. So they're tied together. And she's just making notes in the wax. And then when you're done, Transcribing or editing, you can smooth the wax out and start over again. If you were a spy, of course, you could write your message under the wax and no one would see it, and then you just take the wax out, and so we have espionage from the second century under the wax. This thing's been around for hundreds of years. Um, so what you do is you take a piece of parchment and you slice it up and you stitch it in between the the two halves of a codex, and you have a book. So the codex form of the book, we don't know it's the Christians because we don't know what the first codex book was, but doesn't that make a great story? Uh, And the the Christians were very enthusiastic early adopters of the codex form precisely because it was way more efficient from an information storage and retrieval uh, perspective than scrolls were. Not only was it faster access, and you could begin to evolve things like title pages and page numbers and indexes and all these other finding mechanisms that we so take for granted, we don't even realize them anymore, but you can also use both sides of the paper. So it's way more efficient, it's way easier to use, it's a much more efficient tool, and now we have codices. Uh, The codex form of the book uh, goes on with manuscript, uh, for another 13 centuries, until 1453. I don't have time to tell the whole Gutenberg story, but Gutenberg, who was just kind of a loser. Uh, the only reason Gutenberg invented movable type and changed the, all of human history is because he was a terrible, terrible businessman. And he, had made, he was a goldsmith. He made mirrors for a religious fair and got the year of the fair wrong. So he had all these mirrors and nothing to do. No way to sell them. So he took out a loan so that he could invent movable type.
0: <laughs> That's a great story.
1: I love that story. Um, uh, so, the, he, Gutenberg doesn't do much to the form. If you've seen a Gutenberg Bible, it looks exactly like a printed, looks exactly like a manuscript. It was designed, the font was designed to look exactly like handwriting, exactly like manuscript writing. It's called, a, that process is called skeuomorph. To make something new look like something old. That's why your camera phone, when you, when you got your cell phone and your, the, the camera and your cell phone, that's why it makes a clicking noise when you take a picture. It doesn't have to do that. There's no mechanism. It just does that to make you think that you're taking a picture because you're used to hearing the clicking noise when you have a camera with a physical shutter. That's a skew of more. It makes the transition easier. Why well, the very early ebooks had um, leather covers on them to make them look more like a book. Remember that? That didn't work. But it was a lovely thought. That's a skeuomorph. Skeuomorph. What, copy and paste in word processing. That's a skeuomorph. I mean, what does copy and paste mean? Paste. Paste. Generations of young people think pasting is putting something in a word processing document. <laughs> uh, the form of the book continues to evolve. So it adds title pages in about the 10th century. It adds spaces between the words in the 11th century. So for over a thousand years, books and other documents are written intentionally without spaces between the words. It's called scripto continua. And it's meant to force you to pay attention to what you're reading. Because if you have it makes you slow down. It was not a it, this was a this was a choice. This was not to save space. <laughs> this was a choice. It does save space. But it was a choice to make you engage. And also I mean, it's a kind of weird post-structuralist Foucauldian kind of reader response argument that every time you read a text it's different because you're engaging with it when you're a different person. I don't think that's quite what the second century Latins had in mind, you know, post-structuralism, but there it is. Uh, And and so spaces get added between the words. Page numbers get added. Indentation gets added. Section headings get added. Indexes get added. Tables of contents get added. All of these things, these devices that make the physical book, easier to navigate, get added over the years to the extent that we don't even notice them anymore. One of the exercises I have my class do is look at a book like you never looked at it before and list all the ways in which, all the bits and pieces, all the devices, and they routinely come up with seven or eight dozen devices that make a book work, which every third three-year-old is completely taking for granted. The physical book continues to evolve. Have you seen these flipbacks? They're paperbacks that are just rotated 90 degrees. So they do like this. They're printed like this. So you can read them on the bus without elbowing your neighbor. Um, So even in the face of what we know is coming... That's the most sinister picture I could find. Even in the face of what we know is coming, the physical book continues to evolve. The form and structure and usage of the physical book continues to evolve. Even in the face of what we know is coming, um, with e-books, um, uh, the Kindle Fire, the you know every the sixteen billion of these things, um, uh, the Nook appears to be in some trouble because Barnes and Noble is in some financial trouble. Um, the Kindle is clearly trying to kill all of these, um, and Amazon. As yes, I live in Seattle, I saw Jeff Bezos two days ago in the flesh he's about to death, um, <laughs> at a fundraiser for the King County Library System. So I thought that was lovely of him to, you know, show his face at a King County Library System fundraiser. More power to you, Jeff. I thought, wow, god, little bald man looks familiar. Who the hell is that? Oh, Jeff Bezos. Who's wearing a name tag? I'm like, dude. (laughs) (laughs) You're Jeff Bezos. You're in Seattle. We know who you are, you know? It's not like it's a big surprise. Um, So even in the face of what we know is coming, um, the print book continues to evolve. The digital book continues to evolve as well. Um, just a quick aside. Uh, I, I see Joe's got an iPad. When you are, are moving from one page to another on a on a tablet device or something like that, what do we call it? Sweet. Scrolling. Just how far have we come? Uh, yeah. So we've gone from one scroll to the other. Um, it's entirely possible the ebook is going to look more like scrolls for a while. Because what's a page number mean for an ebook? What's a page? How do you cite this stuff? How do you locate this stuff? Is it by word number, by paragraph number, by a direct citation to the thing, assuming you've got a digital object that will persist long enough that you can point to it in a a footnote? So we may have to evolve all these devices all over again. We, and particularly those of you in the library profession, I say this to my students all the time, we are are, are the first generation in almost two millennia to watch a new device, a new book-carrying device, emerge and evolve before our eyes. Because it's been since the second century that the the primary form of the book has changed to the extent that nobody even thinks about it anymore. So we're privileged in the sense that we get to watch an entirely new format of the book um, be developed and evolve before our eyes. Um, There's also this. Have you seen these book apps? This is not an ebook, and oh my God, what would Ayn Rand have made of this? I think it's particularly fascinating that one of the first book apps was Atlas Shrugged. Oh my God, oh my God, that's just too funny. Um, so this is the this is not an ebook. This is an app of Atlas Shrugged. So just wrap your mind around that for a second. And it does have the text of the book. Yes, that's fine. And it also has like fun facts about Ayn Rand and. Quotes that you can tweet to your friends. <laughs> this, this is the most unintentionally funny thing I have seen in a long time, uh, and and so it's not. It is the net, The it's a tiny quarter of a half of a step away from an ebook towards something a more immersive experience. It's got an audio track and all these other things, but the idea of you know the 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 book is something more than just the text which is a curiously continua kind of idea, uh, this is the very beginning of that, the very, very beginning of that. So, I already gave you this. So, now it's 1665. Let's wind forward just a little bit to 1665. And you're a scientist, or what we have come to call a scientist. And back in the day, they would have called you a... Um, a uh, Natural philosopher. So, more to the point, at sixteen sixty four, let me go back to Imran because it's much. It's that's a prettier picture. Uh, that's the Atlas of, in front of Rockefeller Center. Uh, so, it's sixteen sixty four, and you're a natural philosopher. Now, this is only two generations after Bacon. So, Bacon lays out the philosoph- the scientific method in sixteen twenty. Sixteen sixty four. You've made some discovery about optics or agriculture or physics or mechanics or calculus or something like that. How do you share that with your colleagues? You go to a conference, you present a paper, you write letters. Um, Correspondence was an important method of scientific communication in the middle 17th century. And there's still physics review letters. One of the primary journals in physics, physics review letters, even to this day. 350 years later, there's still this aftertrace of correspondence as a mechanism for scientific communication um, in, our, in the devices we use today. In 1665, independently, in London and Paris, the first scholarly journals arise, completely independent of each other. And, of course, there is considerable squabbling about which came first. Uh, which is ironic because one of the reasons that journals arise is to provide a claim of priority. <laughs> who came first? Um, and you may, you know, scoff and think, oh, who cares about this? There is at least one Nobel Prize that is in dispute. It was awarded, but is in dispute and may have been awarded to the wrong person because they published first, but they didn't make the discovery first. Uh, the Nobel Prize in physics, I want to say, 1985. And they're still mad about it because it's a Nobel Prize, you know, and just because somebody beat somebody to the punch. And the whole Leibniz-Newton calculus thing, I mean, this goes throughout scientific history. Uh, The Journal des Savants and the Philosophical Transactions. The Philosophical Transactions are still being published. The Royal Society in London publishes the Philosophical Transactions, still being published, now online. And actually, the the online uh, Philosophical Transactions goes all the way back to 1665. So you can read the first ever issue of the Philosophical Transactions. The journal didn't survive the revolution. Not a lot did. Um, But the journal did not survive. They tried to resurrect it over the years, but it went away. So uh, these were more or less like the Reader's Digest. Um, They would print little snippets and little highlights and so on. And they quickly evolved into what we think of today as the scholarly journal. Uh, People who published in these journals in the late 17th century would not find anything confusing about a modern scholarly journal in print. It looks exactly the, the format, the structure, the layout, the way it's written, all of it would be very familiar to a 17th century <laughs> scientist. Some of it's written like it's, some of it's written today like it's in the 17th century. Um, it would be better in the 17th century, be a little flowerier, yeah. Um, the, uh, so these fit, these met a need these come after newspapers. Newspapers are increasingly common in Europe in the 16th and 17th century. So the idea of something that is regularly published, as opposed to a book or a monograph, something that is regularly published along with pamphlets um, and other kinds of, of periodical things, that is commonplace. So this meets a bunch of needs. This meets the need of priority claim, this meets the need of peer review, this meets the need of validation, um, and of just w- getting the word out. Um, And and as a result, that's a form that is, again, so successful that it persists to this very day in this very building. So what this tells us is that forms evolve to meet a need. Uh, We've seen this before, but forms evolve to meet a need. Um, Some forms don't last as long. Uh, Newsweek, of course, has ceased publication in print. I don't know if you saw the last... Um, physical issue of Newsweek. The cover was a picture of the old Newsweek building, and over, over it was the headline was a hashtag, Last Print Issue, which I thought was incredibly sad. Uh, but I bought it. <laughs> First Newsweek I'd bought it in like 20 years. I used to subscribe to both Time and Newsweek. What's the point? You know, what's the point of a news magazine? In a 24-hour news cycle, when you can read a tweet, a, a live Twitter feed from what's going on in Jerusalem this afternoon, what do you need Newsweek for? Well, we'll find out what Tina Brown thinks you need it for now that it's lumped into the Daily Beast online and the Huffington Post. We'll all find out together. Time is still in, still in print, kind of, just. Um, they're trying to sell it off. Time Life is trying to sell it off, they're trying to sell off all their print magazines because they're losing money like crazy. They're just hemorrhaging money. All print magazines, not just news magazines, all print magazines, with a few exceptions, like People Makes Money. So that's kind of sad. Um, uh, but forms come and go. Sometimes they outlive their usefulness. So, I had a roommate in 1981 who had this eight trap. Some of you don't even know what an eight trap is. No, you don't. Oh, you poor thing. So, let me try to explain to you the special hell that is a roommate that has Aqualung on an eight trap. So an 8-track is magnetic tape in a cassette. So this is a, a, some of you are having flashbacks right now, right? (laughs) Uh, So this thing, you'd stick into a device, and it would play. And it would just keep playing over and over and over again. And it was on a giant loop, and it had 8-tracks. So you had, my roommate's one had a plunger on the top that could change the tracks. But basically, I listened to Aqualung straight for three months. I could have killed him. (laughs) <laughs> and I think it would have been justifiable homicide because I mean, all I'd have to say is that I listened to Aqualung for like three months straight. Uh, the, so here's a form. I, I often joke that this is the one format that libraries didn't get lumbered with. Do you have any in special collections? Yeah. No. we Cassette tapes we still have. I saw cassette tapes at the Motion Picture Academy Library. They have a fairly substantial collection of audio cassettes with oral histories on them, which they have no idea what to do with because they're degrading. Um, so, uh, the, the, and the concept album as a genre, um, yes, I had this one too. This is mainly just an excuse to put Kilroy was here up on the screen. Uh, and wait till you see what's coming. Uh, uh, the, the idea of a concept album, which is a genre that fits a form. So if you have an LP, which all of a sudden vinyl is coming back again, that's encouraging. Uh, or uh, it, the vinyl sales are up. CD sales are down, vinyl sales are up. So there's a retro artisanal market for these things. Now, whether there's a retro artisanal market for, like, newspapers, print magazines, stuff like that remains to be seen. But the fact that vinyl sales are up, I think, is somewhat encouraging. Uh, but the, the idea of a concept album, which is just a, a group of songs around a general theme, Um, uh, That one doesn't seem to want to go away. Green Day is making them. American Idiot was a concept album. Uh, Then it became a Broadway show. Show. Uh, So forms and genres kind of evolve and sometimes come and go without much reason. Uh, All forms arise for some sort of reason, including YouTube. Um, But when they outlive their usefulness, when something overtakes YouTube, which, you know, has had billions and billions and billions of views, and there's untold millions and millions of videos. When something overtakes YouTube, where is that going to go? Where is that slice of human history going to go? The Library of Congress, for reasons that surpass understanding, is archiving the global Twitter feed. They got more than they bargained for. Just Was it a few months ago they said, well, we don't quite know what we're doing, and we can't really do anything with it, and we don't really have any way to, like, index it or store it or anything, but we've got it! Great, which makes them look like boobs. Um, But nobody is storing this, and if Google just decided that YouTube isn't a good idea, this is all just going to go away. And, And YouTube is an important part of the social fabric right now. And so what is a future historian going to do about the first decade of the 21st century? Because YouTube is not going to be around forever. And in 50 years, what's somebody going to make of the first 10 years of this century? And also one wonders, will people in 50 years care? You know, is there, is there still going to be the interest in the historical record 50 years on, or will we become a society and a people simply of the moment? Um, the uh, While we're still on scholarly journals, and you can tell somebody that I made it all the way from uh, scholarly journals to Glee in three slides, and I defy anybody else to be able to do that. Uh, while we're talking about scholarly journals, this is potent- this arguably the most influential journal article ever printed. Um, uh, you-, you hear people talk about the pages of history This is one of the pages of history. This is the two-page article in Nature in 1953 that laid out the structure of DNA. Two pages, two pages. Uh, And you can just, there's the picture. And somewhere in here they say, we believe this structure has interesting properties. Two pages that completely transform our understanding of um, of ourselves and how we got here. And it's, oh, this structure has novel features which are of considerable biological interest. You think? Um, oh, and then I have to tell the very sad story of Ellen Roach. Does that name, me? I mean, we're not far from where this all happened. Ellen Roach. 2001, Ellen Roach was a um, staff member at Johns Hopkins who volunteered for a research study on asthma. And she was healthy and uh, signed a consent form, and they said "We're uh, this was a, a study of a new method of treating asthma. And the way you study asthma is you artificially induce asthma in a healthy person, and then you see if you can treat it. And the way to artificially induce asthma is by uh, giving people a compound to inhale called hexamethonium. And Ellen Roach signed up for the study and inhaled hexamethonium, and within three or four days she was dead. Massive organ, massive respiratory failure, massive organ failure. Uh, And the researchers had done their homework. They had done a very thorough literature search about hexamethonium. And not found any article that listed any severe reactions. They knew people would, you know, cough and have artificially induced asthma. Um, Hexamethonium had not yet uh, had only recently been added as a subject term in Medline for the librarians in the crowd. But there was a 1950s article from Index Medicus that was only accessible through a print database search, a print index search of, of Index Medicus, because Medline didn't go back far enough. Digitally, So if there's an article from the 1950s that says there is the potential for severe damage and even death from hexamethonium, which they never found. All research using human subjects was suspended at Johns Hopkins for several months while this was investigated. Um, in, uh, to, um, to move forward, Johns Hopkins had to agree that every study that left Johns Hopkins, every grant proposal that left Johns Hopkins, had to include a medical librarian as part of the uh, research team to be able to convince themselves they had done the most thorough possible search of the medical literature. I mean, it's a tragedy. Uh, But but here's an example where the the lack of access to the scholarly record, and in this case simply because the Medline didn't go back far enough in digital form and people simply didn't look, it's not – I don't criticize anybody for this um, – can make a huge difference. And the notion of a scholarly journal is that it should be a form that endures over time. We still have journals from the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries, but these forms don't do you any good if you can't get at them. So it's as much about the access mechanism as it is about preservation and conservation of the forms itself. What is now happening to the journal, or what has been happening to the journal as a form over the last 10 or 15 years, as it becomes increasingly digital and As you have substantial mergers and acquisitions in the scholarly publishing business, is that you have more and more of this stuff in fewer and fewer hands. And it also becomes more and more tricky to get at it. So, a form that endures um, in a way that doesn't, a form that endures, but an access mechanism that doesn't, all of these roles, especially as you get to the open access. Uh, journal world of people just creating open access and freely available journals. What happens to things like peer review? What happens to priority claim? What happens to those roles as we go forward? And we don't have a good answer for that. Um, We as people cannot help. Remember I said at the very beginning we make information in two different ways. So far we're still on way number one. We can't help making information graffiti is so far back we don't know when graffiti began. This is second century Roman graffiti. Um, it's a political caricature of a, of a man named Peregrinus, who they were making fun of because of his nose. Um, uh, the, the whole notion of samizdat, which if you remember your middle 20th century Soviet history, uh, this is Helena Bono Sakharova. This was Andrei Sakharov's wife. Um, in the middle of the 20th century in the Soviet Union, you could own a typewriter, but if you bought typewriter ribbons, they had to be registered. You could not own a printing press. The means of, di- of production and distribution of information were very tightly controlled. So what people did was it went underground. Um, Samizdat is uh, Russian for self-publishing, and there was a network um, uh, in the Soviet underground in the middle part of the, 19- middle part of the 20th century for decades of people typing copies of copies of copies of copies of copies of political tracts. Um, uh, uh, this is a, a statement that Helena Bonar Sakarova wrote in defense of another um, uh, dissenter. Um, I call upon those people who value human dignity and the future of their children to come to the defense of a man who has defended others and who has defended the right to read and to think the right to believe, and the right to one's convictions, a man who has always defended the truth. She could have been killed for this. She could have been arrested, sent away, never heard from again. Uh, the Gulag Archipelago that won the Nobel Prize was Samizdat. Pardon? Yep, yep, yep. We can't help it. Even in the fear of their lives. I think I've got yeah. Even in the fear of their lives, in the in, in the darkest days of the Soviet Union, you couldn't stop people from writing and typing and sharing this stuff because it was so incredibly powerful to them. It was it meant so much to them to be able to speak and to share and to read and to learn and to understand that even in the fear of their very lives, they couldn't not do it. We cannot help making information. Uh, there are other things we cannot help. And this is the Reverend Dr. Thomas Baudler uh, and his version of the family Shakespeare, in which nothing is added to the original text, but those words and expressions are omitted, which cannot with propriety be read aloud in a family. So, the word bed is never used. It's the bridal chariot. Ophelia, I'm going to get this right, Ophelia doesn't commit suicide. She just drowns because suicide upsets people. Romeo and Juliet. There is no Romeo and Juliet. There's nothing salvageable in Romeo and Juliet that that, that with propriety can be read aloud in a family. So this, lead, this, this, this gives us the word bodlerization which is you just bastardize the text. You just take stuff out. Um, uh, Huckleberry Finn? Uh, uh, was it Huckleberry Finn a couple, three years ago? They came out with a new edition of Huckleberry Finn where they changed the words. Yeah. So, right, lots of really important words. I won't say it here, but lots of really important words in Huckleberry Finn got changed. And people bought this damn thing. Mark Twain would have found that particular... Even Ayn Rand would have been upset by that. (laughs) I think we're back to this. Uh, Lest you think this is an old phenomenon that no longer happens. If this isn't the creepiest thing you see all day, I want to know what it is. (laughs) This is play. This is a DVD player, and it is it is a normal DVD player. So if you just bought this thing, you can buy these at Walmart and Target and a bunch of different places. You can just put a DVD in and it will play. The trick of a ClearPlay is you can, if you buy a movie, just any movie on DVD, you can go to the clear and you have a clear play device. You can go to the ClearPlay website and download a set of filters onto a memory stick and then you plug it into the clear play, and what it will do is, depending on which of the several dozen categories you choose of things that are objectionable to you, it will omit those from the movie. So it will either blur out a word, If, if you don't like references to the deity, it will blur those out. If you don't like sex scenes, it will blur those out. If you don't like sex scenes from people who have the same body parts, it will take those out. If you don't like there are dozens. There's like a hundred categories of things that it will take out. Um, and they say they do it. So there are people they hire to watch these movies. and They don't do anything to the DVD. It's just the player knows where the objectionable stuff is, and it just bleeps the words, or it takes out entire scenes. And they say they do it in, a way, in such a way that it doesn't interrupt the narrative. <laughs> All I can say is, if you want enter an entertaining afternoon, download the categories that they find objectionable from a movie like Four Weddings and a Funeral? Oh my God, it's longer than the movie. You're right. So this is, first of all, within weeks, they get sued by the Directors Guild for copyright infringement because they say you're making an entirely different movie that is not what we had in mind and now you're making an infringing copy of my movie and the Directors Guild and the MPAA sues instantly. And before the suit comes to trial, the Family Entertainment and Copyright Act is passed by Congress, which explicitly permits this as a a legal process. Now, all you need to know is which state this company is founded in, and which senator introduced that bill, Warren Hatch. It's a Utah company. Surprise! Look at all the happy white people. (laughs) Just saying. I mean, that just is, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god. Yes, completely legal, absolutely legal. So there are all kinds of information behaviors we can't help. Good, bad, and indifferent. (laughs) This is just another recent example of a terrible one. So we make information in lots of different ways, and we interact with information in lots of different ways. What's the other way? Do you know why you have fingerprints? Do you know what they actually do for you, other than identification purposes? Do you know what they do for you physically? They, like your they let you grip things. Right. If we didn't have fingerprints, you can't hold on to anything. It's the ridges that help you hold on to things. The ridges are formed. I went all. called it. The ridges are formed in utero from the pressure of the uterine fluid. So that's why we have fingerprints. That's why they are the way they are. So far as we know, no duplicates have ever been. Now you're all looking at your So far as we know, there have never been duplicates. Um, Fingerprints as as identification goes back to 19th century India. The British used handprints on the back of uh, pay receipts on the theory that you couldn't teach the Indian workers how to write. So you'd use their handprints instead as an analogy that they could receive their pay. (coughs) Oh, those wacky Brits. So that was how we began. Uh, But the use of fingerprints in criminal investigation is largely 20th century. Um, uh, So, this is the FBI, this is a picture of the FBI Bureau of Criminal Identification mid 20th century. The FBI Bureau of Criminal Investigation, which is formed around the fingerprint uh, identification process, is started in 1905. So, it was around in Britain a little bit before that. Uh, there was this incredibly elaborate scheme of a thousand and twenty-four categories, that it did around fingerprints, around shape and size and structure, and, and uh, identification is made by basic shape and then by things like where the ridges on a particular finger on a particular ridge and where the where the ridges begin to bifurcate. I learned about all this because I went down to the King County Sheriff's Office. King County in Washington State. That's the city of Seattle is in, the County of Seattle is in, which is one of the one of the national centers for I had no idea. One of the national centers of fingerprint identification, funded by a federal grant and also a special levy by the taxpayers of King County. Now I went down to the sheriff's office because, you know, you watch CSI, or I used to watch CSI before it got weird. And <laughs> At some point in almost every episode, they would do the fingerprint thing. You know, they'd take a fingerprint off of a body or a glass or a piece of dust or God knows what else. And they would stick it in the system, and it would go bing, right? And I wanted to know, and it always went bing, and I kept thinking, why doesn't WorldCat go bing? You know, if WorldCat, like, cycled through all the covers of all the books that it isn't what you're looking for, and then the book you are looking for comes up with, like, ping, wouldn't that be more interesting? Wouldn't that be better? Yeah, sure, that'd be better. So WorldCat should get on that. We should get OCLC on that. But that's not going to happen because that would be too much fun. So I went to the King County Sheriff's Office to ask, like, how does this work? I mean, so there is no National Fingerprint Identification Bureau. There just isn't. There's no national system. The APHIS thing they talk about in all the crime shows is basically MARC. It's a database standard. So you can encode. And then I kept asking, what's the metadata? What do you search on when you're trying to search a fingerprint? What's the metadata you search on? And they didn't understand the question. And I kept saying, well, how do you match fingerprints? Well, we just, the computer matches them, and then we, you know, we, we double check. All, a human verifier always double checks. This is while I'm sitting in the lab, and behind me, the printer is chugging out fingerprints for every person booked into the King County Jail. So as soon as you're arrested and booked into the King County Jail, they take your fingerprints, and they get printed out in the lab. So this was a weird day. And there, there is no metadata. They don't encode metadata. It's brute force image matching with one megabyte images. Every fingerprint is a megabyte. And it's brute force matching. But there is no centralized... There is a federal database, but local jurisdictions don't have to upload stuff. So. Uh, And and you don't have to share across any kind of boundary. And I said, so somebody in King County could commit a crime, and you've got their fingerprint, and they're wanted for something in Pierce County. And if you didn't have the right thing, it wouldn't match. Like, oh no, that happens all the time. We have no idea, no way to know, because nobody shares. We don't have to, because we're all too busy. I don't know if you feel good about that or not. You know that you that that you can. I always figured as soon as you breathe hard in the subway station, they can identify you, right, from your DNA or something. Apparently, they're not that good. Um, so I kept trying to figure out, like, what is it, you know, how does this work? Um, and so it's just brute force image matching. There's, there's nothing more personal than our fingerprint. It is one of those things that uniquely identifies it. It's a product of our DNA. There, there's nothing more identifying than this, nothing more personal than this. And it is of our body. And we have made this information. So this is the other way we make information. We make it intentionally in books and magazines and journals and 8-tracks and CDs and downloads and YouTube. And We make it intentionally. And then we make other things informing. And we can't seem to help that either. And then, at the same time, some of us, can't help collecting and organizing and searching and helping. This is not an actual picture of the library at Alexandria, in case you were wondering. This is not a picture. It's a great picture. This is from the Carl Sagan Cosmos series from a 1,000 years ago. It's a great picture. I'm sure the library looked nothing like this. We know next to nothing about the Library of Alexandria. We certainly don't know what happened to it. There are lots of great stories about the fall of the Library of Alexandria that it burned. Well, it did burn. That was in the Elizabeth Taylor movie. It did burn. Um, Caesar burned it. You know, that was Richard Burton burned it. In. <laughs> no, Rex Harrison burned it in, in clear Um more than likely, what happened to the Library of Alexandria is what happens to all libraries when they die, as they just disperse, as the stuff just went. But the Library of Alexandria had the single greatest collection development policy in the history of humanity. Does anybody know it? The collection development policy for the Library of Alexandria. Everything. Well, here it is. So use this. If you were in, so it started roughly minus 300. It lasted for several hundred. If you went to Alexandria, if you arrived in Alexandria by ship or on foot, you were greeted at the port, Welcome to Alexandria! Do you have any books with you? (laughs) Yes, I do! Well, that's nice! We're going to take those now. (laughs) Now, copies were made of all the books. You got the copies back. They're not fools in Alexandria. And that's how they built the collection of the library of Alexandria. Now that is smart. That is smart. So, the the Library of Alexandria is is the great example of libraries that we all know. Um, And it tells us something about the impulse to collect and share and organize and manage and use. We can't help this either. This explains the formation of the American Public Library in the middle 19th century. This explains Google. The impulse behind Google, even though it comes from computer scientists, is no different from the impulse behind the Library of Alexandria, or Boston Public, or this building either. You can't, the, the, so this tells us that the impulse to do something with information is universal as well. You can't have a complex society. You can't have a system of science. You can't have a system of law. You can't have a system of faith. At any, sophistication, at any level of sophistication, Without ways of sharing information, without ways of storing it and recording it and sharing it and transmitting it, without those mechanisms of information, complex human society is not possible. Oral society will only take you just so far. And these informational objects, these building blocks of human society, have been with us for so long that we don't even notice them. We're oblivious to their effect. But now that they're all changing, now that they're becoming digital and network and social and collaborative, now all of a sudden we're paying attention to them for the first time in a long time. Their power is becoming much more obvious. So let me finish with my my favorite image. This is the Cueva de los Maños in Argentina. This is around 10,000 years ago. And what these are, are negative handprints. So this is a cave wall. And what people did is held their hand up against the the side of the cave and blew pigment over them, and then you take your hand away and you get these negative handprints. And we have no idea what this was. Was this a census? Was this voting? Some people think, in the way that only archaeologists can think these things, some people think that based on the size and shape of these hands, that these were pubescent males. So this might have been a manhood ritual of some sort. But we're guessing, because it was 10,000 years ago. Imagine what they would make out of, like, you know, Twitter. So whatever we think is wrong, it's got to be wrong. But it's just a compelling idea that 10,000 years ago, people put their hands up against that wall to to do something, to, to make a statement, to count each other, to vote, to identify themselves as a community or a tribe, or I think, and there's examples of this all over the world, including in the southwestern desert, where there's just a single handprint. And when you see the single handprint, all I can think of is it's somebody saying, I was here. And I mattered. And I was trying to figure it out. And I, you should just listen to me for just a second. And that, to me, is Twitter. And YouTube, and, and Facebook, and all the rest of it. Is, is, and science, and books, and law, and faith, and song, and drama, and art, and all of it is. I was here, and I was trying to figure it out. And I want you to listen to me for just a second. This speaks about our search for meaning, our search for self, our search for uh, understanding of ourselves and the universe and our place in the universe. All of these information objects shape what we know and how we learn, the questions we ask and the way we ask them and how we answer them, how we communicate, how we share, how we interact, And ultimately, these information objects shape the way we see the world and the way we see ourselves. We are who we are in no small part because of the information that we make and use in both ways. So we make information, and information makes us human. Thank you all so much for coming, especially on a snowy day.